Hello, and welcome back to the Sun and Moon Sober Living Podcast. This is an inclusive space where we explore addiction recovery, mental health, and holistic sober living. My name is Mary Tilson, your host, and I'm a certified recovery coach and yoga and meditation teacher. We've had a bit of a break since the last podcast episode, and a lot has happened offline in the last month that I thought I would just take a minute to fill you in on. I co-hosted a recovery retreat for women in Crested Butte, Colorado, with my good friend, Carrie May. Some of you may remember Carrie from episode 53 of the podcast. She has really been a leader of the sober movement in Chicago and also shares a love of bringing people together in nature on retreats. So this retreat was a long weekend full of hiking in the mountains, yoga and meditation. We had some really meaningful reflections and conversations. And also important to add, there were a lot of laughs. And I'm really a big believer that laughter is some of the best medicine. So I'll say that was a highlight for me for sure. And I actually have two retreats coming up in the next year. So I'm going to include a link in the show notes to join the waitlist. If that seems like something you might be interested in, be sure to add your name and email and I'll be sending out all of the details for those soon. And then more recently, towards the end of September, I also attended the She Recovers Conference in Chicago with hundreds of women in recovery and some incredible speakers, including Valerie Kaur and Elizabeth Gilbert. So needless to say, it's been a big month, and I'm also very excited to be back sharing new episodes for the podcast with you. So for today's episode, I have the wonderful Kezia Calvert, who some of you may know from Instagram as the Sober Elephant Chronicles. Kezia is the founder of her creative business, Kezia Calvert Creative, where she guides people on a journey of self-discovery through writing. Many of Kezia's students are in recovery, and her workshops are safe spaces for people to find their place of belonging in the world. When she's not putting pen to paper, Kezia is a busy wife and mother of two, one of whom is a newborn. She loves fitness, being outdoors, and reading. And I'm also... Happy to share that Kezia will be leading a guest workshop this month inside our virtual membership platform. So the live workshop with Kezia and replay will be available for all members. You can check out the link in the show notes after the episode for more details on that. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Kezia. Kezia, welcome to the podcast. I'm so excited. We've been chatting about doing this for a while, and I know you've had some major life changes happen recently, which we were just speaking about. Congratulations on your new baby. How does it feel having a new baby in the house? I know we were speaking offline, but there for our listeners because it feels so significant. Yeah, it's it's been such a blessing. My daughter is eight and a half. She'll be nine in December. And so I feel like I don't remember a lot of it. I mean, that's actually almost probably, I think similar to your sobriety length. What do you have like eight years or something? Sorry if I'm wrong. Oh, right. Okay. So do you feel like, do you ever think back to the beginning and think about having to do that again and be like, it would feel new in a lot of ways, right? (laughs) You know, and I think that's kind of what I feel about this. Absolutely. um, Yeah. I think recovery is just always presenting new things every day. I mean, I feel like there's a reason it's called a journey. And so I definitely feel like there's a newness to it all the time. And that, and that actually, when you said that it's like parenthood and motherhood is a journey too. So I feel like no two children are the same. No dynamic is the same. My, my daughter has, I was a single parent with her and now being in a stable, healthy relationship, not an active addiction and being able to be the parent that I always wanted to be, I think is just such a like humbling experience. Like sometimes I'll look at my son and I'll just be like, and it is like postpartum hormones too, (laughs) but you just get like overwhelmed with gratitude because you're like, Oh my gosh, like I could have never imagined, you know, before November of 2020, when I got sober, that this was even possible. And we had a long road to conceive him and we had a miscarriage and things like that. And so to be here now, 
in the hard moments, kind of like with my recovery, I just remind myself that I can do those hard things and that I'm equipped with everything that I need within me. And I work on it every day too. Like I'm still learning stuff. So, but it's kind of like that parenting is like you hold your breath and you just like jump off the cliff. And it's kind of like that with recovery. So it's like, I feel like it's equipped me to enter this new phase of motherhood in my (laughs) forties in a different way, you know? So, yeah, that's amazing that you can see it from that perspective. Now, do you just feel like you're more like resourced and supported now? Cause inevitably I feel like motherhood is challenging for everyone. I'm in such awe of mothers, especially mothers like you that are showing up in so many other ways, like being on this podcast. So do you feel like you're more equipped for it? Definitely. There have been so many things that I've learned in my recovery journey that I now pull into motherhood and patience for one thing is just huge because, you know, everyone talks about how as a parent, your patience is constantly tried and you're, you know, always have, and that was like actually a big overwhelm and, and things like that were a big reason behind my drinking. And I think now being able to pause in a moment and be present and be like, okay, this is frustrating it, I am frustrated with my kids or I am at the end of my rope with something. And just like admitting that instead of trying to cope by drinking and glossing it over and just pretending it didn't exist, you know? So yeah, I think there's a lot of things now in my toolbox like that, that I'm like, okay, I can lean into this, even just my self-care. Like I just, I looked at drinking as as self-care when I was drinking, like that was my release, my shut off valve or whatever. And now I'm like, oh, that couldn't have been further from the the truth, you know? So, yeah. Definitely. And that whole concept with mommy wine culture has been brought up so many times on this podcast about also how women tend to be encouraged in that direction of using alcohol as a way to cope. And I know you mentioned just referencing the difference between your experience now that previously you were still drinking. Do you mind sharing a bit of your story and what what it was like for you when you were still drinking alcohol and what led you to get sober in the first place? Yeah. So I'm Canadian. I grew up in Edmonton, Alberta in Canada, which is like one of the coldest places outside of Siberia. Um, Very cold. Uh, It's Western Canada for people who aren't kind of familiar with the geography. And I am the oldest. I have a younger brother. We're almost three years apart. And I was saying to you before we started recording, we're not really that close. He's in my in my daughter's life and and in my parents' life. And we're in each other's lives, but we never we never had a closeness growing up. I always felt like he was very similar to my parents, personality-wise, kind of I I I I see it differently now, but at the time I felt like they were the three of them, my mom, my dad, and my brother were very introverted that they, I felt very judged by them, very scrutinized for, I was kind of daydreaming and head in the clouds and things like that were kind of the words that were used to describe me when I was growing up. I found out later in life, like in recovery that I have ADHD, but I didn't know it at the time. And I think it's very common to have that. I'm sure you hear it a lot talking yes. with people like, oh, I realized or I didn't realize that I had whatever the kind of comorbidities that happened. So that was a big part of why I felt different to them. But we we did family stuff all the time. We went to church. I grew up going to church. I was really involved in the church youth group and I was a camp counselor for a long time. And I really really loved that. That was kind of a big part of my my social upbringing. And my my mom comes from a big family and we always had like family gatherings. She's one of she's the oldest of eight kids, so there was always aunts and uncles around. I was really close to my grandma on my mom's side and I just have a lot of fond memories of family stuff, but I do remember also I guess the ADHD and also what we mentioned or what you and I had talked about before about being highly sensitive. I remember like every holiday, specifically like Christmas, we would have a big family gathering at my grandparents' house. And my grandfather had built a log house when they retired and it was beautiful and it held, it had room for everybody. 
And we would go there and I would be upstairs with a stomach ache or puking or throwing up or just like really overwhelmed and overwrought every single year, every year. And it never, we could never piece together what it was. And looking back, I think I was just so, there was usually like 35, 40 people there. I think I was just like, my whole nervous system was just excitement level, like a million, but I didn't, I didn't know that's what it was. And so I think when you don't know, you know, as a child, like something will get labeled or people will tell you what something is and you don't really, I didn't really feel that I was able to make my mind up for myself about something. It was just like, oh, this is what it is. You're the girl that's always upstairs being sick or whatever, you know? Um, Yeah. That was kind of one of my memories of childhood. I kind of went off on a little path there. (laughs) Yeah, that's so interesting because I think there's more understanding now about the mind-body connection and how we do have these physical responses, but I think sometimes people think those things are completely separate. So when you say they had their own ideas about it, what do you think, what do you think people were, how do you think they were interpreting that? Well, so there was a few things that showed up in childhood and in like teenage years that I was told or that I picked up on myself, like people, I I got the feedback a lot that people thought, not just my family, like people at school thought I was snobby or serious. Serious was the other one that I got because I was very like, I know this about myself, but people didn't know. It's like, I was very shy to use my voice, like my authentic voice around people. So I would kind of just dumb down and dampen myself, you know, try and just kind of blend in. And people took that to me being snobby and not wanting to connect with people. And now as a parent, when I watch my daughter and and people like kids in her class are like drawn to her, like I'm constantly getting like messages like, oh, so-and-so wants to have a play date with Harper. Can, can we set something up? And and I'm just like, and and I say to my husband, and he's like, he is truly an introvert. And both of us are just like, Harper has like a bigger social life than we do. And she's eight, <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, but, you know, I had friends, but it was that it's those words stick in your mind. I always, I then started to kind of identify as being snobby and being serious, if that makes any sense. Like I just kind of felt that that was part of who I was and in a, a negative way. I was a I was also a huge bookworm. I still am. I think you and I have talked about books before too. Yeah. Um, <laughs> my nightstand, we won't go there. And my TBR shelf is like overwhelming, but books were my escape and books were my mom is a retired teacher librarian and so books were always a part of our our lives. And I think I just, we went to the library every Friday as a family and I would just escape into those books and that, you know, and I met other, other kids that were into that. And we did, we did all sorts of activities growing up. I was a gymnast. Um, my brother played soccer. I didn't do team sports until high school. I played rugby for a couple of years. <laughs> they, they had a rugby thing. They had a rugby coach come to our school. And I was like, I want to try something. That was the biggest out of my comfort zone thing I tried. Yeah. Wow. That's I, a pretty rough sport. We didn't have that at my school. We we didn't until he was South African originally. And it was, I was in grade 11. So it was like my middle year of, of high school in Canada. And he joined like the phys ed staff or whatever. And I remember a couple of my girlfriends were like, oh, there's this new coach here and he's going to be setting up a rugby team. And I was like, I'll do that. And I actually really loved it. I played wing. I was like the little person on the outside that runs the ball. And it was my first time ever doing a team sport. And I think that was kind of, um, I don't, I don't remember what I thought at the time, but if I think about it now, I think I was just, you know, looking to try and get into that sort of team aspect. I felt lonely a lot growing up and and that carried on to into my drinking days. So I wasn't wasn't a teenage drinker. I didn't start binge drinking or anything in college. I didn't even really in Canada we don't have the same 
not quite the same college culture that you guys do here in the States. Um, a lot of people don't go away to college. There's a lot of uh, rural, I grew up in a city, but there's a lot of rural area in Canada and people, you know, it's more about family focus and stuff like that. And um, so I didn't go away. I moved overseas. I, I met a guy my first year out of high school, a British guy. I worked with him. I had decided after high school, I was like, okay, I want to go and do journalism in college. But I went into journalism. I lasted, I don't know, for like a month. And I hated that style of writing. I love, I'm a writer, but I hated that style. I didn't want to interview people about like their son that just got murdered. I was like, I can't do this. (laughs) And so I dropped out of college and I got a full-time job. I moved out on my own with a couple of roommates and I met this British guy and we dated and he actually ended up asking me to go or asking me if I wanted to go back to the UK with him when his contract was done. And I was like, sure. (laughs) And that was kind of, that was indicative of like, I always just wanted to leave home. I wanted to move out. I felt different to them. I just wanted to prove something. I was like, I can do this. And so when, when Phil gave me that opportunity and my maternal grandmother's British. I was like, I'm going to do it. So I moved overseas. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, and how was that? It was amazing. It was an amazing experience. It I can't imagine how my life would have been different if I hadn't done it. You know, it was one of those kind of formative things. I was able to travel all through Europe and Australia and Southeast Asia and a bunch of places. And I kind of just really grew up there but him and I grew apart or or maybe we were like I was like 20 when I met him so I think I just grew up and he was a little bit older and I just grew up and we just grew apart and I came back to Canada and I was like now what and I was 27 I was like okay I can get a job but I don't know what I'm good at you know when you're in a relationship you kind of define yourself as one of the two people in that relationship. And I think that's what happened with us. And all of a sudden it was like, I thought we were going to get married. I thought we were going to have a family and stuff. And none of that ended up happening during that time too, like drinking in the UK, there's a big, have you been over there? I have. Have Yeah. 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 It's like a big pub culture. There's a, it's a huge after work. There's a huge binge drinking culture. Now I haven't lived there in a long time. Maybe it's changed a little bit, but I think it's still pretty similar to how it was when I was there. Yeah. Even things that I've heard from people in this community and people that I've connected with who are also sober have shared that it does feel like in some ways it might even be behind the U.S., Just from what I've heard, not making any statements on that, but I do know that it's a really big part of the culture. I think what I've, from my understanding, it's that in the US, we tend to have a much bigger binge drinking culture from a young age, whereas just like the normalcy of drinking being kind of all pervasive in society seems, well, it's big everywhere, right? (laughs) Yeah, it was different though, like, because you would go, everyone had like their local pub, And then you would have like pubs that you and your friends would meet at. There was a pub for every occasion, right? Like it was, I remember like so a few distinctly British things. There was pubs, there was tea. Like my grandmother, I grew up drinking, she was drinking tea. Like no matter what, like you're having a life crisis, here's a cup of tea. You're getting married, here's a cup of tea. Like everything, you know, just for everything. And so it felt really nostalgic for me when I was there. Um, But there was the pubs, there was the the tea and there was just kind of this um they work hard and play hard like they worked I remember compared to Canada I felt like they worked more hours than we did in like a a work week but they got more vacation time in the summer kind of thing but when they were when we would have time off like we would just party so hard and I wouldn't have thought I would have never said when I first got sober that I had a drinking problem then but looking back on it now I think it really had already like the seed had been planted then because when I drank I couldn't just have a couple drinks I had to get blackout drunk and it was for the purpose of like going out and doing 
I think what it was, was going out and letting my guard down and being uninhibited. And I felt inhibited by all these labels that I, that people had given me and that I had given myself. And then I started to believe and were ingrained. And this is when I realized like, I don't, I didn't feel like I belonged anywhere and belonging has become a huge part of my recovery. Now I know we're going to talk about it, but that, that from looking back on it is like, I did drink that way. Then there was, and, and there's a, there's a girl I connected with it through sober Instagram who I knew from that time in my life. Uh, she worked with my ex-boyfriend and she's sober now. Uh, she's got a couple more years on me and she's just like her and I, she told a story like a few months ago, she commented on one of the posts and one of my posts and was like, Oh, I remember blah, blah, blah. I was like, wow. Like, cause it was one of those things that like, I didn't remember that about myself. And she's like, Oh yeah, we, you know, it was something to do with shots, like first thing in the day or I don't know something. And I was like, she's like, yeah, you were always up for it. And I was like, Oh, <laughs> you know, so Yeah. Wow. It's really powerful to hear you share about just alcohol being a way to allow you to be a bit more inhibited. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I hear this common thread with, well, ADHD, the ADHD and alcohol addiction connection is very strong. I know that we actually recently had a podcast episode about it, but also just this, I was sharing with you this common theme of people who are highly sensitive, you know, being affected by alcohol in this way, because I think it does make sense. You know, when you're moving through the world as a very sensitive person and you're feeling mm-hmm. so intensely, and in your case, you're being boxed with these labels that don't feel like who you really are. I think that's another piece is as humans, I think one of our deepest longings is just to really feel seen and understood. So to be told yeah. you're this really serious person when you don't feel that inside, I can imagine would be really painful. Yeah. Exactly. It, it was exactly like that. I, I felt misunderstood, I guess, is is a, a word for it at the time. Like I just, I couldn't, I and I felt when you talked about the ADHD piece, for me, it still shows up sometimes in the form of like, I will dumb down. And that's not the right term, but it's the term that I use. Like, I enjoy vocabulary and sometimes I'll use words that my husband will just be like, can you just say like the the, uh, the real word for it? <laughs> you know And I'm like? And, and so then I started just changing the way I was like, I was like, oh, I just got to dumb this down. And the way to do that was drinking would quiet all that voice and all the things in my head. And I've heard so many other people say that because we're so similar in this in so many ways, you know, I think there's a definitely certain qualities that lend themselves to addiction in that way. And for me, that was just trying to show up in a way. Cause I remember when I first started going to bars and stuff, I would go with my best friend. This is way back in the beginning in Canada. You can drink when you're 18, some places 19, but where I grew up was 18. And my best friend at that time, my life was younger than me, but she had a fake ID. And so I would take her out to the bars with me. And, and she was beautiful girl looks like Cameron Diaz. Like we would get attention wherever we went. And I remember the one time this sticks in my head and I'm turning 42. Now I remember this guy saying, Oh, you look like that girl from Ellen, like in that exact tone. I don't even know who he was talking about. He says this to me. And then he's like fawning over her. Right. And that like summed up how I felt about myself, like my confidence and things And so I would just, I I would have a drink in my hand because I'd be like, it would allow me to look at people like her and be like, okay, I can be like them. I can be uninhibited. I can be sexy and cool and fun and all this, you know, and that's how alcohol is also marketed. But at that time, I don't remember that. Like, I really see that now with, with things like the mommy wine culture and stuff. I didn't see that then, but Yeah. So when you think back at when you first started drinking, do you feel that at first it was working? I mean, did you, was that a positive solution in the beginning? I think so. I think it was. And I also didn't see it as problematic. Like when, when I moved to England, I was 20. I lived there for almost like for six and a half years. So I spent a lot of my twenties there 
And drinking was what people did when you weren't working. Like on the weekends you were drinking and you could, and I saw people doing the whole thing, like holding down really demanding careers and home life and family life and responsibilities and still being able to drink. And I was like, oh, this is perfect. Not realizing like, A, it's just what they want you to see. You're only seeing one part of someone, but also B, maybe those people don't have a problem with alcohol. Maybe you're drinking a lot more than they are, which was certainly the case with me. And, and so I'd, you know, play that comparison game, but for a long time, things were okay. Like my boyfriend, then him and I didn't drink together aside from going out like that, but we had other interests. We did other things. Things were stable I think when things really started unraveling was when him and I broke up. I had come back to Canada for a visit because my grandfather was really sick at the time. And this was after we had bought a house in England. We, you know, I had gone to night classes. I took my English literature undergrad. I was working in recruitment. Everything was good. And I came back to Canada and, and I wanted, I guess I wanted out of that relationship, but I didn't know how to do it. And so I just went on this like big party bender. Plus I was really upset about my grandfather and I just kind of, I let loose on that trip and I just completely set everything on fire. Like I was just like, I don't need that relationship. I was going out and partying with other people, talking to other guys and yeah. And that was kind of the start of when alcohol became a crutch for all these things that I just kept like sort of stuffing down, I guess. And did you yeah. end up having some like pivotal rock bottom moment or how did you ultimately arrive at the decision that you needed to reevaluate your relationship with it? Yeah. So that, so things carried on. Like I, I moved back, him and I broke up, we sold the house, which was really hard to do overseas. Like he sent, I sent all my stuff back on a ship, like all this stuff. And I came back and I got a job and for the rest of my twenties and like, or like, end of my 20s I sort of traveled a little bit I went to Australia I had a job I did a few things just trying to figure out where I was I'd moved back to my hometown for that job and it was so weird being back like I was going for dinner at my parents and doing laundry there I had an apartment downtown and and then I ended up in British Columbia and that's where I met my ex who's my daughter's father and that was the start of the bottom and it was a bottom that lasted for six years. <laughs> that yeah. sounds really dramatic, but we, him and I had a drug history and, and then alcohol. When I became a single parent, my daughter's eight now. So eight years ago, eight and a half years ago was when I started ramping up with the drinking and the rock bottom really, I I couldn't, I was trying for about three years before two or three years before I got sober November 1st, 2020. And I was trying for two or three years before that I, I was going to the gym and listening to Laura and Holly's home podcast, like secretly. I don't know how I found it. It was, it was, I must've been searching for something. And then when Laura's book came out, I secretly again had signed up for the luckiest club and by this point, I'd met my now husband, him and I met in 2018 on Instagram and not the sober Instagram. I didn't have that, <laughs> that one yet. And we met and I was keeping this big secret from him too. My drinking was, was a problem then. So that the rock bottom was a progressive slide, but it, it involved me ending up in the ER multiple times in alcohol withdrawal basically lying to myself and others saying it was panic attacks and things like that but it was really serious like it was I was a morning daily drinker at the end I couldn't keep things together and you know and I was mixing very dangerous like you know benzos and alcohol and just trying to cope but again not telling anyone what was really wrong and so I think it just kind of it got to the point. So my date is November 1st and Halloween had always been this big party time with me and my friends as a single parent. And I think it was just kind of fitting that that's when 
I said, I can't do it. And it was about a month and a half before Harper and I were immigrating here. That was my last drink. And when I told my husband, well, he was my fiance then that I had joined the luckiest club and stuff. He was like, what? So he, he had no idea, you know, that's amazing. And that's such an important point. I think to make even the people closest to us can be completely unaware because I feel like a lot of us that have struggled with alcohol and in some cases, drug problems, it's like we become masters at hiding the extent of our problem. I mean, were you actively hiding it from him when you were with him? Yeah. I remember one time, so he used to drive up to Canada to visit me and we live in his hometown that he grew up in now. So it's about a seven hour drive. He'd leave on Friday after work and my daughter would be with her grandparents, like her, my ex's parents for the weekend. He would drive up. Well, the one time he drove up and I was, I lived in a triplex in this like old Victorian home and my apartment was on the upper floor. So you had to unlock the that the down like the main floor and then another door. Long story short, I fell asleep because I was drinking and I did not unlock the door. And he was, and this was winter in Canada, and he is oh. sitting in his car, freezing in my driveway, waiting. And this is the first time he said to me later, he didn't say anything at the time, but he said to me later, he goes, I thought I smelled alcohol on your breath that night when I finally, I woke up in this like frenzy, like what's going on. And this was a regular thing for me at that point. Like I was often passing out when I was, or blacking out when I was drinking and then very dangerous. And, and so, yeah, he, he, that was the point. There was one other thing after that, we went to Atlantic city for my birthday about a year after that. And I, started drinking in the morning, but, but I got him to drink with me too. Cause I was like, Oh, we're here for my birthday, whatever. But then on the way to dinner that night, I took a huge fall in the casino and I like slid on my, they were really high heels too, <laughs> but I slid on my heels and fell straight on my butt and I was just humiliated. And then I went to dinner, I went to that dinner and I drank more, you know, cause We've you don't deal know with the humiliation, right? Right. 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 So yeah, that, that was it when I, but he's been very supportive, you know, so it it was never, but I, I don't think like him and I did an Instagram live a couple of years ago. And when I first started this journey near the beginning and I asked him a bunch of questions and stuff, cause it was around the time him and I got married in Vegas and I was about six months sober when we got married in Vegas. And it was like right after that. And I remember asking him some questions and like, he was brutally honest. And I was like, wow. Cause I just, I was a, not a very nice person when I was drinking, especially to him, like to the person closest to me. And I think that's pretty common for us. We can put on this like facade to other people and we can have this image and this veneer, but I think things were building up and he was the only person I had to like kind of take it out on. And so he got like the brunt of it. Poor guy. (laughs) Definitely. That's very relatable. I'm still haunted by some of the things that I said to my mom in particular. I remember like when she tried to be so supportive and just like lashing out with these nasty comments and it's just, yeah, it's so true. It's the people that are closest to us. Cause when we can have, you know, barriers with people where we can hide certain parts of ourselves. But yeah. The closer you get to someone, they're going to see it at some point and they're going to be on the receiving end, I'm sure. Well, that happened. You said your mom, that was the way. Okay. So my uh, Instagram handles the Sober Elephant Chronicles and my mom sent me an email in like June of 2020 and the title was The Elephant in the Room. And she basically was saying that she had caught on to my drinking. She had come up, she had come to Ontario. We were living outside of Toronto and she had come to help us pack up the house because we thought that we were going to be moving soon. This was like right in the middle of the pandemic, but we were waiting on our immigration interview. And anyway, mom came up by that point, I was just trying to like keep it together. And I had like drinks hidden in my socks, sock drawer and in my closet and in my like everything. And when she would take my daughter to the park, like I would be drinking, she smelled alcohol. She said I was slurring my words, things like that. But I thought I like had the wool over. So when she sent me that email, my husband and I were at the gym and it was like 4.30 in the morning and I was so pissed. And I was like, can you believe this? And he, 
he didn't know that I was lying to him too, right? So I was like, can you believe this? Like, what a bitch. I can't believe that she would say this and all this stuff. I didn't show him the email though, right? I just told him my side of it. And anyway, so when it, when I finally set up my account, I was like, that's the perfect name. An elephant was my grandmother's favorite animal and mom's email to this day, it still kind of haunts me because I was so irate about it. And she was so right about all of it. <laughs> you know. Yeah. I love knowing the meaning behind your handle. Actually, that's something that I should have asked you anyway, but yeah, it's crazy. I I've brought that up to my mom before. Like I have a memory at one point in particular, we were on a family vacation and I was absolutely out of control and I was getting more rounds of shots and rallying everyone else. And she just gently looked over. I mean, she's such a sweet, you know, like she's, Mm -hmm. she's not in any way, was not in any way aggressive about it or just kind of, you know, asking if maybe I'd had enough. And I was like, get out of here. You're so boring. And of course I'm like wasted. And interestingly, I mean, she was the one that I came asking for help multiple times later. So I think sometimes when people hit a nerve, because we know Mm -hmm. that they're right on point, it's like, and we're not ready, we can become so reactive and defensive. And when they, and that's like, that's funny that you say boring. Cause that was my whole thing too. Like I thought people that didn't party were so boring. I was like, you guys just don't know how to let loose. You don't know how to have fun. And it was like, I've had more fun in the last like two and a half years than I, I'm not saying I, there was never fun times, but near like for the last like five years of my drinking, it was just hell because it was a constant, it was I was, it was an obsession. It was literally my life revolved around alcohol. So it wasn't that I was living my life and that it was an accompaniment to it, which is what, you know, advertising and people will have you believe it's like a pairing, like, Oh, you compare this with this meal. Well, you compare this with your life. Like, no, not when, when you have a, a problem with it, because it just, it was consuming and it was the focus as opposed to everything else. So like the boring thing, I just, I just laugh now because I'm like, how did I ever think that? And yeah. It's it's funny because I thought that too. That was a big fear of mine. And I hear it all the time from other people too. But it's funny just giving that specific example. I mean, what is more boring than the person that can't form a sentence? Pretty much that whole (laughs) trip. It was like when you go to a, a foreign place and you spend all your time doing exactly what you would be doing at home, which is getting inebriated versus actually exploring the place that you're visiting. I mean, yeah. Oh yeah. It's like, it, you think about it and you're like, it's actual insanity that that, you know, and I have a lot of compassion for the girl that I was then and the things that I went through and I was doing the best that I could at the time, but I'm still working through the shame and the guilt. I feel, especially once my daughter came along, like around some of the boundaries that I had, there was a lot, her and I, are quite codependent still to this day. There was a lot of enmeshment because of our situation. I had come out of a mentally abusive relationship and she was like all that I had. And so she was forced to grow up in a lot of ways. And you, and we see it now, like as parents, my husband and I see that she believes or that she does things that show that she thinks she's like a teenager. And it's like, we just want her to be a kid and it's hard, you know? And I, I can't say that I don't still feel shame, but I am also working through that. And that's all that I can, I can do, you know, at least I'm trying to understand and trying to have compassion for myself. Yeah. And I think there's something so powerful about demonstrating recovery too, like showing the process of going through something really challenging and overcoming it. I mean, what have been, when you did make that decision to get sober, what have what was the path for you? Where Was there a program you worked or specific tools or practices that you do and still do daily? Yeah, that's a really good question. I So I tried a few things. During the pandemic, I tried virtual AA meetings and I reached out. I just, I think I just called like a local chapter and was like, and they set me up with a meeting or whatever. There was a women's meeting And then there was another one. It was like a 6 a.m. or something. So I could do it in my bedroom like before she was up. And I did that for a little bit. I remember one of the women dropped off a copy of the big book on my doorstep. And I like got that and whatever. But I just, it just didn't, I didn't click with it. I don't think I was ready 
then either. Then when Laura's We Are the Luckiest came out, um, I signed up for, there was like a lot of free meetings when she first started doing it. And I would go to meetings and I would um, listen with my camera off and I would still be drinking. And I would drink during the meetings, like on a Friday night, but I wanted to um, hear people's stories. And I wanted to see other women like me doing this, like actually getting sober, actually not just functioning, but enjoying life without alcohol. I was like, is it possible? I felt a lot of shame around the things I had done. And I just felt like I couldn't even try. Like I was just like, you know, so, but I eventually ended up getting sober in the luckiest club. But what that took was me turning my camera on, putting my number in the chat, reaching out to people, connecting with people, using my voice. Like I was like so scared to share anything. I remember my hands were shaking so bad. My chest was like so tight. I still get nervous sometimes. Like when I interview people on the podcast or whatever, like so it's, it's good nerves. Right. But like, this was like sweaty palms kind of thing. And, uh, but I just, I had to do it. I just shared some things. And I remember the one day just before I got sober, I'd come on and I was having an issue with, with the woman that lived downstairs and I just had this huge breakdown in the on, on the call in the meeting. And after that, it was like the floodgate had opened and Halloween was coming around. And the one friend that I was always going out drinking with was like pressuring me to go out again, not knowing that I wanted to try and be sober. And I'd had a few days here and there through that summer of the pandemic, but overall it had been still a, a total gong show. And, and so, yeah, so I don't work a program. I still attend the luckiest club, but I, right now I go, well, even before baby, I usually go once a week. It's on a Friday night and Fridays, like weekends were hard. Going into the weekend was hard for a lot of people. It is. And I think that connection it's with the host is Amy Dresner, who is like the perfect host for a Friday night. She wrote my fair junkie and she's got a lot of recovery and there's just a really good group of people there, but I do a lot of things myself as well towards my recovery. Writing has been a huge part of it. I think you and I have talked about. Yeah. Can you speak to that? Yeah. So one of my things, when I first got sober, I, I realized that I wanted to be a writer for a very long time, but I didn't, I wasn't able to do it when I was drinking. I couldn't follow through on anything. I couldn't be relied on for anything. I wasn't responsible when it came to that. And so when the pandemic hit, I was like, I want to connect with people. How do I do that? And I remember going on Eventbrite one night and just like, I was like, I just want to gather people in a room. I want to have, I, I love having conversations with people like deeper than surface chit chat. Like I wanted to have meaningful conversations with people and connect. So I just set up this thing. I, we were we just moved to the States. We just immigrated. My husband's American, but I wasn't allowed to work. I didn't have my green card, so I couldn't charge him any money for anything. <laughs> so I was like, okay, I'm going to set up these little meetings. And I started doing it and I called it, well, it's now called writing courageously. And it's, uh, I do a women's writing circle on, on Fridays now. And I do a Sunday and a Monday. Well, I won't be doing Monday anymore, but I'll be doing, I do Sunday and, uh, and that's a, a co-ed one. And we just, a lot of us are in recovery, but it's not a prerequisite for it. I have a theme. We do all sorts of things. Like next month we're doing Pivot Year, like Brianna Waste's book. We're just kind of going through that. I write prompts and we do meditation and we just, we share our writing if we want to. It's been really cathartic. Yeah. I remember looking on your website and seeing that you had one of your writing series themed around belonging. And I think it was inspired by John O'Donohue, who I absolutely love. And so when I saw that, I was like, first of all, I was like, I need to join this, but we need to talk about this. Can you speak to, because I know you touched on this earlier, but that whole concept of belonging, I feel it's so, so big and important to, to really contemplate for those of us who are sober. And I know you've had a lot of experience with it. Can you share what your thoughts are on that? Yeah. Yeah. When I first had set up this little community and it was free. So whenever something's free, you get a lot of people on Eventbrite. Like I would have like meetings that had like 50 people at from all around the world. It was so cool. There was people 
everywhere. And we would just meet. And one of the first things that we, one of the things that came up early in my recovery was this idea of belonging. And I touched on it earlier when I said that like in childhood and with my family, I did, I felt like the outsider or like the black sheep. Right. And it was important for me to connect with other people who felt that way and to give them a space where they could be seen and heard and in safety. And that's what we've cultivated all of us. Like, I don't see it as like, I'm the leader and these people are my followers. We're just gathering in that space. And it hasn't, I've never had any, I'm not very good with business stuff. So I'd never had any goals to like make it X size and to make this amount of money. I don't know anything about that stuff. I maybe in the future, that would be something, but I think it was really just, I wanted to share what was on my heart with people and and have them feel safe to do the same, whether it was recovery related, whether we're talking about a book, whatever. And I think that's what's lacking. I believe that's what's lacking for a lot of us is that connection piece. And Johan Hari talks about that, the, the lost connections and stuff. And I really think that that's what we were all searching for. And for me, in sobriety, it's presented itself in the form of these small groups, like these little, almost like breakout groups. I'm not, it never became me with 250 people. I like to give people a chance to share. So most of my classes are like 10 people or less. And it's been, and it's been perfect that way, but belonging, it just kept coming up. There was the, have you read Tokapa Turner's yes, book? I love that book. I, I love the illustration. Oh, I love the illustration. I love her whole everything, her website, everything like that. That was one of the early influences for kind of my work around my recovery and having my recovery anchored into this idea of belonging. I found that I needed something to anchor myself to. I kind of needed to figure out what my core values were. Before I got sober, I started seeing a therapist in Canada and we did cognitive behavioral therapy, which a lot of people are familiar with. We did something called acceptance commitment therapy. And and I learned so much about figuring out what my core values were and whether I was living in alignment with them. The irony being that I was still drinking at that time and it actually escalated to the worst it had ever been. But my my relationship and what I learned from that therapist was so pivotal later. Like I often want to like find her on the internet and like reach out to her and be like, hey, Dr. Jolly, just want to let you know I'm doing okay. Um, but but I I figured out through that process that we we need to have those little markers and those little anchors for us so that we can we can return to those and we can show up authentically and then you can you can learn to trust yourself through that because you're like actually I did show up in this situation authentically the outcome wasn't what I would have hoped for for myself or for the other person or whatever but I can trust that I did it to the best of my ability and and that's enough right whereas without knowing those things i would show up and i'd just be like a loose cannon in so many situations like i would turn into this chameleon you know a lot of people do that when they're drinking where you're like oh, i'm just going to do what these people tell me to do <laughs> which involves showing up going to after parties and going with strange people and all sorts of dangerous things <laughs> yeah and you i know? remember Chocopa talks about this concept of like false belonging. Mm -hmm. I think it's from her book. Yeah. Where we feel this false sense of belonging because we're wearing a certain brand or we have a career title or whatever the situation might be. And I think that's so common with addiction. It's like we find these false senses of connection and belonging and it leaves like such a hollowness inside because it's not really filling that, that actual need for belonging, of feeling like authentic connection and being able to show up as ourselves. Yeah. And I think, I think a lot of society is based on that false belonging though. So you really, what happened when the pandemic came along, it shook things up for a lot of people. And at like, at that point in my trying to get sober in my sobriety journey, I really felt like 
if I didn't change it now, like nothing was ever going to change, right? I was still going to have to be on the hamster wheel of, oh gosh, I got to get, you know, this iPhone now and I got to get this house and I got to go to this party and I got to have this makeup. Like it was always something. It was always something external to me. Whereas belonging through the process of exploring that has taught me that so much of who we are is inherent to, to us. So like nobody can take that away and nobody, nothing that I buy or put on myself or anything like that is ever going to change what I have to offer that is perfect just the way that it is. So yeah, it was a, it was a very humbling process to do that through recovery. Cause, and, and it's interesting in my um, writing community, there's a few people when they come in at first, there's an Irish woman who was like, I don't like the idea of belonging. I don't belong to anyone, you know? And she said this very openly to me. And we had this like very interesting conversation because it again reminded me of like labels. And I was like, it's so interesting how we can have like a preconceived notion of what something means and it can mean something different to another person, you know? So I don't know, but the belonging thing and her and I, and she's like, ah, so we had that conversation, which is what I was craving the whole time when I was drinking and I would have conversations in kitchens with people, you know, at like four in the morning, (laughs) it was never, it was never this. And so having that connection with someone and we both learned something from it, I was like, is fulfilling in a different way. Yeah, that's so interesting. And that actually makes me think there's so many conversations in the recovery community, the sober community, alcohol free, you know, about labels and language. And that's why I'm always hesitant with which words I choose in that conversation, because what's liberating for some people feels like, you know, a cage or a stigma for another person. And, you know, I think like the example of alcoholic is a classic example of that. Like, for me, taking on that label felt like a radical act of acceptance and being able to free myself from something. Whereas for other people, it feels extremely, yeah, like something that is, is yeah, very restrictive. And I think we need to be aware of those things. And also just to be able to have the conversation is really helpful too. Like that you could have that open conversation with that woman. I think, and I think that was at the heart too of what I hope that people would find. I I always said to people, I was trying to think of that when I was, when I was designing the website with working with someone, we were trying to think of like, you know, like an elevator pitch, like, Oh, how do I describe what I do? in like, you know, a few sentences. And I was like, Oh my God, it literally kept me up for like weeks. Like I could not, (laughs) this is the ADHD too, probably, but I just like, I couldn't wrap my head around trying to explain what I did in less than a few paragraphs. And what it was, was that I want, I said to people when they first signed up or whatever, I'd be like, I'm not going to teach you how to write. We're just going to, I'm going to give you a space and I'm going to give you some prompts and we're going to talk about some things, but ultimately this is a space for you to come and heal from whatever you're healing from, to work on the things that you're going through right now you can show up one day and be totally on your A game. You can show up and not write a single thing another day. And that's totally fine too. And that was where the courageous part came in. Cause I, it took me a while to think of what I wanted to call it. Cause I was like, uh-huh. you know, I just didn't, I just started it on a whim and I was like, okay. So, and I don't keep up my website by the way, <laughs> which I really should. That kind of stuff has never been my forte, but it's not that it doesn't interest me. Actually, it does interest me. It's just, in this season of life with a newborn, it's not the time to be revamping things, but yeah. yeah. Well, you know, I think that you having those writing workshops is so beneficial, especially for people in recovery. You know, I was just having a conversation with someone, Dr. Steven Danzinger, who works a lot in the, he's an EMDR therapist who works a lot Mm. in the expressive arts. And we were just kind of talking about this idea of like, not needing to be an artist or a writer or a creative and feeling like that's your title in order to express yourself. And that like as humans, we're innately creative. And I think opening that door for people is so amazing. I love that you do that in a community setting. I mean, do you find that people have to slowly accept themselves as somebody who can create work if they're, if they don't identify as an artist? 
Yeah, I think one of the first things I always tell people, I'm like, if you haven't read The Artist's Way, Julia Cameron lays out going on artist date with yourself, go on a date with yourself, like figure out, you know, just just be with yourself. I think there's all this pressure to, to, again, the labels, like you said. And I remember one of the Instagram accounts that I love inspired to write, I don't know if you follow her, but she she just like breaks all that down. Like you do not owe anybody any explanation. If, you know, you know, when you show up at like a dinner party or something, and one of the first things people say when you meet a new person is like, what do you do? And it's like, they, they asked me that I had an eye appointment this morning and the guy, he's, I, I felt like he was like Doogie Hauser. I was like, he looked like about 15, but he was like, well, so what do you do? <laughs> and I was like, lots of things. I do lots of things, right? Like I have a newborn, I have a other child, I have my interests and I'm a creative being. And, and yeah, I just love that you speak to people who feel that that is okay. And, and to your point, like a lot of people do come into the writing class, they'll have their camera off. Like I did when I first joined the sobriety meetings they won't share anything. There's no obligation to either, by the way, like you don't have to share anything, but they would be totally quiet. And then they come out of their shell over the course of the months, or they decide that they want to interpret these prompts through visual art this week, or they want to do a gratitude practice. They want to, or they want to start journaling. I try to expose them to little things. We watch videos together and stuff just to see what other people are doing. Like, oh, I spent a week um, doing writing the way Stephen King does, which is not sustainable, by the way. Like nobody can write 2000 words a day, every day and write a whole book in like three months. <laughs> but we just, I don't know. There's just curiosity is a huge part of my sobriety. And I think that I just try and model that and do that for other people. And when they can't do it, just direct my energy towards them. Yeah. I love that so much. That's so great to hear. I think that's the beauty of removing all of these, the substances that are really disconnecting us from ourselves. I think sometimes Mm -hmm. we need a little support to actually be okay with allowing more of ourselves to be seen too. And so having a space to do that feels really important. I think, and it's interesting too, as, as someone who does that, I also want to, I also have to show up in spaces where I'm not leading that, like where I might be the person that's just sitting and listening. I'm part of something called the isolation journals community, Salika Jawad. And, and I can go once a month, they do a a gathering of people. It's like 200, I don't know, 250 people on zoom. It's just for an hour. We get a prompt and then we just all write together in silence. Like it's so cool. And but like just to see the faces on the screen and then, you know, like th- this last week, like the woman leading it was in Barcelona with her family, her young family for vacation and stuff, you know, just stuff like that. I think it's important you balance it out with also feeding yourself, like nurturing your recovery through the things that you're doing. I get up early. Well, <laughs> not right now. right now. I don't sleep normally, but my my sobriety is based on getting up and having time for myself in the morning, I exercise, I do yoga, I do, I work out in the mornings, I do my own writing, my writing changes, though, right now, the last couple of weeks, I've been doing gratitude every day. So I'm not familiar with that. Generally, (laughs) it's not something that. that people do. Yeah, it's nice sometimes to just try different things, though. And gratitude is such a powerful practice, especially for recovery. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's been so nice to hear about your story and just the things that you're bringing into the world and offering, you know, in closing, if there is anyone who's listening and is struggling with their relationship with alcohol right now, and just thinking back at where you were before you got sober, is there anything that's been left unsaid or anything you'd like to leave them with that might be helpful for how they can start to make their way out of it and, and work towards sobriety? I think. I think it's just, I I posted a couple of days ago, like the last line of what I said is like, you have to just be honest with yourself, not just everyday honesty, like radical honesty. And you, that honesty truly is the only way, because when I first started trying, 
And when you see people trying and then it's not, you know, and they're going back, I don't want to use the word relapse, whatever word you want to use when they're trying multiple times, it's because they're still lying to themselves about something. There's something that, and maybe it's that you haven't discovered it yet, but all I could say is radical honesty, sit down for me, I'm a writer, like get out a pen and paper, start writing down how your drinking makes you feel, how, how you want to show up how you imagine yourself. Like I always felt like there was this little person, this other girl and trapped inside of the drinking person persona that I was just dying to get out. And so, yeah, just that honesty, I think is very important. That's so important. Well, thank you so much, Kezia. I'm going to be sure to link your details in the show notes. And so people can connect with you on social media. It's so nice how you're active on there and sharing a lot of support and inspiration. And of course, your writing workshops too. So thank you so much for being here. I'm so glad we could have this conversation. Thanks, Mary. 